Thank you so much, young people. That was amazing. And Karsten on the, on the cello, I loved it. It does my heart so good. <clears throat> well, I need my notes pretty badly, unlike Mabel, who can just say it all, and she pretty much said it all. Uh, so it's hardly that I need to be up here, but uh, <clears throat> my name's Dan Siebert, and uh, we've been coming here, Carol's with me, we've been coming here for about the last two years, and uh, I've appreciated each person's insight into the parables this summer. When we were on vacation, we listened to the ones we missed by not being here, some in the car. We stayed with my mom in Kelowna while my sister and her husband were on holidays and watched one of the services with her. My mom is 99 and she appreciates someone near, at least for part of each day. My mother is still quite sharp and last year at my older brother's funeral, she was asking her grandson for some pictures to travel or to uh, transfer to her iPad. He asked her how he could do this and she said, well, why don't you just airdrop them to me? <laughs> well, this has nothing to do with the message, except for the fact that she gave birth to some of us brothers mentioned in the message. Here she is uh, with her children, a daughter, three elder brothers, and two younger brothers. You'll get the significance of that as we go along. When I received an email asking people to volunteer for speaking on the parables, I thought, oh boy, that's not for me. It sounds like a common theme for people that have been up here this summer. I remember hearing a message based on a book by Timothy Keller called The Prodigal God and having it speak to me, even though I hadn't read it. So I bought the book and thought that its insights could possibly speak to you too. I don't take credit for these thoughts and owe most of them to the writing of Timothy Keller. As I read the book for the first time a few weeks ago, I was waiting for a windshield to be put into my truck and uh, sitting in the waiting room just with tears in my eyes as I thought about how I fit into the sto story. Keller uh, started and pastored the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's a theologian, apologist, philosopher, and author. He wrote The Reason for God, influential in my life and many others, too. Unfortunately, he passed away just a few months ago. Now, the common name for this parable is the parable of the prodigal son. My Bible calls it the parable of the lost son. But that singles out only one son, Jesus starts by saying, a man had two sons. And what Jesus says about the elder brother is one of the most important messages given to us in the Bible. The word prodigal does not mean wayward, but according to Webster's Dictionary, recklessly extravagant, or to spend until you have nothing left. So this term can be used to describe the father in this story as well as the younger brother. The father's welcome was reckless since he refused to reckon 
or count his sin against him or to, be, to demand repayment. In the story, the Father represents the Heavenly Father that Jesus knew so well. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul writes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning to them their trespasses. Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure, whose grace is our greatest hope. So, Luke 15, 1-3, first of all. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then he goes on to tell the, tell the parable about the, uh, the lost sheep, and then the one about the lost coin, and then he ends up with the parable of the lost sons. And my Bible says lost son. Jesus continued, There was a young man, or there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring, on, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. and When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, 
you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I honor you for speaking into our lives with the example of your Son and through your Holy Word. Help us now to learn from and apply lessons from this parable. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Chad stated in the message of the lost coin, there were two groups of people that Jesus was directing his message to. First, the tax collectors and the sinners. These people corresponded to the younger brother. They didn't observe the moral laws of the Bible. They engaged in wild living. They also had left home the traditional morality of their families and respectable society. Remember Matthew from The Chosen? His parents practically disowned him. Secondly, there were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These represented the elder brother. They held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They read and studied the scripture, worshipped faithfully, and prayed constantly. Younger brothers were attracted to Jesus and his teachings. and This puzzled the religious leaders. Luke says, This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. And to eat with someone in that culture was a sign of acceptance. How dare Jesus reach out to people like that? They don't come to our services. They don't sing our songs. He must be giving them what they want to hear. So the parable is directed more to the second group, the scribes and the Pharisees, religious people who do everything that the Bible requires. Jesus is not targeting targeting immoral outsiders as much as he's targeting moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. Original listeners of these stories were not even thinking of the grace shown the younger brother. They were infuriated and offended. We have elder brothers and younger brothers with us today, sometimes from the same family. The oldest is often responsible, the responsible parent pleaser, the conformist, The younger is sometimes the rebel, the free spirit, stressing freedom from convention and personal autonomy. The modern culture wars are playing out in a similar manner. Many young people today see themselves as non-religious or anti-religious. They are suspicious of institutions or individuals who claim moral authority over the lives of others. On the other hand, or maybe because of this spirit, there has been a growth of conservative, orthodox, religious movements. These people see things in black and white, very few gray areas or disputable issues. They are alarmed by the moral relativism and want to take back the culture, and they take a dim view of younger brothers, as the Pharisees did. We 
do things right. So there's polarization. Whose side is Jesus on? Neither side. But he seems to come down hard on religious moralism as an especially deadly spiritual condition. When Christianity first arose in the world, it was not even called a religion. Someone would ask, where is your temple? And the Christians would say, we don't have a temple. Where is your priest? We don't have a priest. Where is your sacrifice to please your gods? Oh, we don't make sacrifices anymore. They would say Jesus is the temple to end all temples, and he's the priest, and he's the sacrifice once and for all. To the Romans, this sounded bizarre, and so they called them atheists. To most people in our society, Christianity is religion and moralism, and the only alternative to it is pluralistic secularism. Earlier, this was not so. Religious people were offended by Jesus, but the estranged were attracted to him. Jesus says in Matthew 21:31, the tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom before you when speaking to the respectable religious leaders. Jesus attracted the irreligious while offending the religious Bible believers. It makes me wonder how our churches and we in our everyday lives are appealing to younger brothers. Maybe our churches are more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. Back to our story. This parable is a drama in two acts. First of all, we have the lost younger brother. Scene one. He makes a shocking request. Give me my share of the inheritance. In that day, the oldest would often get twice what the younger got, or the others got, and in this case, it would be two-thirds, one-third, when the father died. The request now shows deep disrespect, almost like wishing him dead. He wants to move away from the father, away from God. Give me what is mine, he says. And the father's answer is startling. He could have driven the son out with nothing. Normally, a person would get angry and maybe retaliate. But he doesn't, out of love for his son. Scene two. He's in a far country. He squanders his inheritance. He had lots of friends while he had money. He's down and out. He comes to his senses. It says he comes to himself. Maybe this is what it means when he finds God. Then he devises a plan. I'll admit I'm wrong. I'll work for my father. I'll try to pay off that debt. He says, make me like one of your hired men. I'll become a mechanic. I'll work. So he got up and went to his father. Scene three. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Distinguished patriarchs didn't run. This shows his emotions and acceptance as he falls on him and kisses him. Quick, get the best robe, probably his own. 
Put it on him. You don't need to first grovel or pay off your debt. I'll cover all your shortcomings with the robes of my office and my honor. Then he commands his servants to prepare a feast of celebration. It's like the angels rejoicing over one sinner who repents. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate and party. This is a very special occasion. God's love and forgiveness can restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you are. Act 1 demonstrates God's lavish grace, whereas Act 2 shows how much it costs. Act 2. When the elder brother hears what's going on, his younger brother has returned home and been reinstated, he's furious. Now it's his turn to disgrace his father. He refuses to go in to likely the biggest event his father has ever put on. He casts a vote of non-confidence to what his father is doing. So the father comes out to plead with him, but he continues to refuse. Why? He's worried about the cost. The calf is really only a symbol of the cost. It's very likely that the younger brother is now an heir again to one-third of the now diminished family fortune. I've worked like crazy, and this brother is reinstated? He's done nothing to earn it. Where's the justice in that? You You didn't even consult me. I have rights. He insults his father further. He doesn't address him respectfully, which would have been very important in that culture. But he says, look. It's like saying, look, you. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, and notice he doesn't say brother of mine, he says son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What's the father's response going to be? He could have disowned him right on the spot. But what does he do? The father comes in tenderness. My son, despite how you have insulted me publicly, I still want you in the feast. I didn't disown the younger brother, nor do I want to disown you. Swallow your pride. Come into the feast. It's up to you. Listeners are sitting at the edge of their seat. What's going to happen? Will he be softened by the offer and be reconciled to his father? And there the story ends. Why does Jesus leave everyone hanging? It's because the story is for the Pharisees, the elder brothers. He wants his enemies to soften, to respond to his message. Jesus is redefining what it means to be lost, what it means to connect with God. He redefines sin, what it means to be lost and what it means to be saved. Jesus uses this story to tell us that there are two main ways that people use to find happiness. One is moral conformity, 
and the other is self-discovery. It's the way people uh, view all of life, finding worth, discovering and curing the ills of the world, and determining right from wrong. Elder brother types, the Pharisees, illustrate moral conformity. They were chosen by God and got salvation by strict obedience to the scripture. They put the will of God and community standards above individual fulfillment. And even failures are dealt with in a certain proper way. In the parable, the younger brother illustrates the way of self-discovery. Many more people do this today than in ancient cultures. They pursue their own goals and self-actualization no matter what the customs and conventions are. Traditions, authority, and other barriers to personal freedom should be eliminated. Defund the police. Each one says the other one is the problem with the world. And if you're not with us, you're against us. Some can secretly be in both worlds. You hear of respected citizens or even clergy getting caught in stings to catch pedophiles. Jesus says that both of these approaches are wrong. In Act 1, Jesus shows us an obvious depiction of sin. The younger brother humiliates the family, lives a life of self-indulgence, and is out of control. He is alienated from the Father, God in this story. In Act 2, the elder brother is obedient, in control, and self-disciplined. One would normally see One would normally be seen as bad and the other one good. The father has to invite each one to come into the feast of his love. There are two lost sons. In Act 2, Jesus deliberately leaves the elder son in his alienated state. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the highly moral person is lost. The Pharisees can't see it. They can't believe it. It's the opposite of everything that they had been taught. Why doesn't the elder brother go into the feast? He answers the question himself. Because I've never disobeyed you. He's not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sin, but the pride he has in his moral record. Not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that keeps him from sharing in the feast of the father. What did the younger brother want? He wanted to make his own decisions with the wealth of the family. What did the older brother want? Pretty much the same thing. His father's goods, rather than the father himself. One went far away, and the other one stayed and never disobeyed. This was his way of getting control. Each wanted to be able to tell the father what to do. They both rebelled. One by being very bad, and the other by being very good. Most people think that sin is failing to keep God's rules of conduct. This is true. But Jesus' definition goes beyond that. You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. Then you have rights. God owes you. Answered prayers, a good life, a ticket to heaven when you die... You don't need a savior who pardons you by free grace. 
for you are your own savior. The elder son has a chance to delight his father by going into the feast. But that's not his goal. He does what he can to resist and hurt the father. If you seek to control God by being good, then you're using him to get what you want. In Peter Schaeffer's play Amadeus, that's uh, Mozart's middle name, according to legend, the young Salieri makes a bargain with God. Now, Salieri is a contemporary with Mozart. This is what he says to God. I would offer up the proudest prayer a man could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. And in return, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility, every hour of my life, and I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. Well, things go well for him for a while. He keeps his hands off women. He teaches musicians, some for free, and helps the poor. And then Mozart shows up with far superior musical gifts. He's self-indulgent, vulgar, the younger brother. And this sets up a crisis of faith in the elder brother heart of Celieri. Similar to the elder brother, he says, it was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift, and there was Mozart indulging his in all directions, even though engaged to be married, and no rebuke at all. This really wears on him. And finally, Salieri says to God, from now on we are enemies, you and I. And since that time, he tries to destroy Mozart. In the end, Mozart is dead at 34, and Salieri ends up with serious mental issues. God is silent in the play, unlike the father in Jesus' parable. Jesus doesn't divide the world into moral good guys and immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation. Both are wrong, but both are loved and invited into his love and feast. So, I bet you didn't think I was coming to this. What's the solution? Jesus says the humble are in and the proud are out. Look, looking at Luke 18, 14. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. Psalm 138.6 says, The Lord cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. The New Living Translation. The younger brother's lostness is self-evident. The lostness of the elder brother shows itself in anger and bitterness. When things don't go your way, you become angry. You have a feeling of superiority, this son of yours, I'm much better. You have hostility toward those who think differently, which leads to things like racism and classism. An inability to handle suffering, 
Why are these things happening to me? I've been good. An unforgiving, judgmental spirit. A lack of assurance of the Father's love. A dry prayer life. You pray when things aren't going well or to get something. There's little adoration. And I must just have to interject here that I appreciate Pastor Darren's um, way of incorporating adoration into his prayers. You also have a sense of insecurity that makes you overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet merciless in condemning others. The good life is not for delight in good deeds themselves, but as a calculated way to control your environment. What do we need to escape our particular brand of lostness? We need, the initiating, we need God's initiating love. The Father comes to each son and expresses love to bring him in. Even the most religious need the initiating grace of God. There is hope even for the Pharisees, those who will soon hand him over to be executed. Somehow, God seeks us out. He did this with one of my younger brothers. Len gave me permission to say this. He dropped out of school just before graduation, and with the help of our parents, partial early inheritance, bought his first 18-wheeler. He was into the party scene, and after a fear of losing his license, moved to a far country, the USA, to Oklahoma, where he trucked for some time. It was after a devastating breakup with his girlfriend that he hit bottom, came home, and made peace with the God who was pursuing him. Then there's the elder brother, me. I became a believer at an early age. I did some things right, never got into the party scene. I went to camp, to Bible school, got married, and I've never slept with another woman. Worked with youth, donated my time and money to MCC and other charities. But wait a minute. This is a clear recipe for elder brother pride and trying to be my own savior. It's not hard to remember times of thinking lustful thoughts about attractive women. I remember times I remember saying discrediting things about a neighbor who I thought wronged me. The list is way too long to tell all. There is none righteous, no, not one, especially. Not, not me. But God still loves me and gives me grace, and that's. I am saved. It's all his doing. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us three parables. In the first one, a sheep is lost and the shepherd goes out to find it. When found, there is great rejoicing. In the second one, a coin is lost and a woman takes great effort to look for it. And when found, there is great rejoicing. In the third, a son is lost. In each case, there is rejoicing when the lost is found, but there's a difference. No one goes out to find the lost son. 
Jesus knew the story of Cain and Abel. And God says, you are your brother's keeper. The elder brother should have gone to find him. He should have said, I'll look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, like I suspect, I'll bring him back at my expense. Forgiveness demands a price. Somebody always has to pay. If your brother borrows your car and puts a dent in it, you can forgive him, but either he has to pay for the damage or you do. Maybe he can't pay like the younger brother, like the younger son. Then you pay, or insurance done, does, and you pay extra premiums. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting forgiveness. The father's forgiveness is free to the lost son, but it's going to cost the elder brother big time. But Jesus does not put a true elder brother in this story, one who goes out to seek and to save that which is lost. The younger brother gets a Pharisee instead. Jesus invites us to long for a true elder brother, and we have him, Jesus himself. He didn't just go to another country to find us, but came from heaven to earth and gives us life, free, but at a tremendous cost to himself. Somebody had to pay. How can the workings of the heart be changed from anger and fear to that of love, joy, and gratitude? You need to be moved by the sight of what it costs to bring you home. The major difference between a Pharisee and a believer in Jesus is inner heart motivation. That sums up the first hundred pages of Keller's book. If I have whetted your appetite for a greater detail and the other 50 pages in which he talks about your new and continued relationship with God, you can buy the book or borrow it from me. And I'll leave you with just a few more ideas from the last third of Keller's book. In Jesus' parable, the younger brother goes off to a distant country hoping to get a better life, but is disappointed. He then longs for home, and so do we all. The whole of Scripture after the fall is the story of exiles longing for home. We were created to live in the garden of God. In the meantime, he longs for a closer relationship with us. At the end of the story of the lost sons, there's a feast of homecoming. So too, at the end of the book of Revelation, there's a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here we will eat, sing, embrace, laugh, and dance in the kingdom of God. Jesus will make the world our perfect home again. And to sum things up, Jesus' parable tells us that both the sensual way of the younger brother and the ethical way of the elder brother are spiritual dead ends. He also shows us another way through him. To enter that way and to live a life based on his salvation will bring us finally to the ultimate party and feast at the end of history. We can have a foretaste of that future salvation now in prayer, in service to others, in the changes in our inner nature through the gospel and through the healed relationships that Christ can give us now. But they are only a foretaste of what is to come. May we be known by our true faith 
the acceptance of costly grace and true forgiveness and a sensitivity to the needs around us.